Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com. In this episode we'll be continuing our reading of Five Months at Anzac. Uh, we're up to chapter 12. Please take a moment to uh, sign up for your free subscription to 191419181918.substack.com. Every week I'm sending out a newsletter at the moment uh, that includes uh, an eclectic mixture of articles on the subject of the Great War from around the internet, uh, which uh, has some interesting stuff in it sometimes. So uh, you can try that subscription for free and uh, see if you like it. Right, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for a while is at stake. Chapter 12. The Destroyers. After the torpedoing of the Triumph here, and the Majestic in the Straits, all the big ships left and went to Mudros, as there was no sense in leaving vessels costing over a million each to the mercy of the submarines. This gave the destroyers the chance of their lives. Up to this they had not been allowed to speak, but now they took on much of the bombardment required. They were constantly nosing about, and the slightest movement on the part of the Turks brought forth a bang from one of our guns. If a Turk so much as winked, he received a rebuke from the destroyer. The naval men all appeared to have an unbounded admiration for the Australians as soldiers, and the boats rarely came ashore without bringing some fresh bread or meat or other delicacy. Their tobacco, too, was much sought after. It is made up from the leaf and rolled up in spun yarn. The flavour is full, and after a pipe of it, well, you feel that you've had a smoke. Chapter 12. The Indian Regiments We had a good many Indian regiments in the Army Corps. The Mountain Battery occupied a place on Pluggy's Plateau in the early stage of the campaign, and they had a playful way of handing out the shrapnel to the Turks. It was placed in boiling water to soften the resin in which the bullets are held. By this means the bullets spread more readily, much to the joy of the sender and the discomfiter of Abdul. The Indians were always very solicitous about their wounded, When one came in to be attended to, he was always followed by two of his chums bearing one a water bottle and the other some food, for their caste prohibits their taking anything directly from our hands. When medicine had to be administered, the man came in, knelt down and opened his mouth and the medicine was poured into him without the glass touching his lips. Food was given in the same way. I don't know how they got on when they were put on the ship. When one was killed, he was wrapped up in a sheet, and his comrades carried him shoulder-high to their cemetery, for they had a place set apart for their own dead. They are constantly squatting on their haunches, making a sort of pancake. I tasted one, but it was too fatty, and I spat it out, much to the amusement of the Indians. One of them saw the humorous side of life. He described to Mr Henderson the different attitudes adopted towards Turkish shells by the British, Indian and Australian soldiers. British Tommy, said he. Turk shell. Tommy says, ah. Turk shell, Indians say, whoosh. Australians say, where the hell did that come from? 
The divisional ammunition column was comprised of Sikhs, and they were a brave body of men. It was their job to get the ammunition to the front line, so that they were always fair target for the Turks. The mules were hitched up in threes, one in rear of the other, each mule carrying two boxes of ammunition. The train might number anything from 15 to 20 mules. All went along at a trot, constantly under fire. When a mule was hit, he was unhitched, the boxes of ammunition were rolled off and the train proceeded, nothing stopped them. It was the same if one of the men became a casualty. He was put on one side to await the stretcher bearers, but almost always one of the other men appeared with a water bottle. They were very adept in the management of mules. Frequently a block would occur while the mule train occupied a sap. The mules at times became fractious and manipulated their hind legs with the most marvellous precision. Certainly they placed a good deal of weight in their arguments. But in the midst of it all, when one could see nothing but mules' heels, straps and ammunition boxes, the Indian drivers would talk to their charges and soothe them down. I don't know what they said, but presume it resembled the cooing, coaxing and persuasive tongue of our bullock driver. The mules were all stalled in the next gully to ours, and one afternoon three or four of us were sitting admiring the sunset when a shell came over. It was different from that usually sent by Abdul, being seemingly formed of paper and black rag. Someone suggested too that there was a good deal of faultiness in the powder. From the subsequent inquiries, we found that what we saw going over our dugouts was a mule. A shell had burst right in one of them, and the resultant mass was what we had observed. The Ceylon Tea Planters Corps was bivouacked just below us, and were having tea at the time. Their repast was mixed with mule. Donkeys formed part of the population of the peninsula. I am referring here to the four-footed variety, though of course others were in evidence at times. The neddies were docile little beasts and did a great deal of transport work. When we moved out in August, orders were issued that all equipment was to be carried. I pointed out a drove of ten of these little animals which appeared handy and without an owner, and suggested to the men that they would look well with our brand on. It took very little time to round them up, cut a cross in the hair on their backs and place a brazard round their ears. They were then our property. The other type of donkey generally indulged in what were known as furfies or beechograms. Furfy originated in Broadmeadows, Victoria. The second title was born in the peninsula. The last breath of rumour ran from mouth to mouth in the most astonishing way. Talk about a bush telegraph. It is a tortoise in its movements compared with a beechogram. The number of times that Achibaba fell cannot be accurately stated, but it was twice a day at least. A man came in to be dressed on one occasion. Suddenly some pretty smart rifle fire broke out on the right. Hell, said the man, what's up? Oh, said Captain Dawson, there's a war on, didn't you hear about it? And on that sarcastic note, we leave chapters 12 and 13. Thanks for listening and uh, look forward to you joining us on the next episode. Bye.